welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. Okay, everyone, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. My name is John LeBaron. I am the Chief Revenue Officer here at Pattern, and this is e-commerce innovators. Today, we are joined by Parker Benton. He is the VP of Sales at Brondell Incorporated, uh, based out of San Francisco. And welcome to the show, Parker. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. How is, uh, how's the city? How's the waking up of COVID happening right now? I, I think California was a holdout for a very long time. Um, masks were in full effect last time I was there. Is it is it opening up and are people coming out and, and coming back into the city? People are emerging from their uh, their caves, I guess you, you could say, um, but it is slow going still. I wouldn't say that the city's quite awake yet. <laughs> That's good. Well, we're definitely, we're based here in Utah and we're definitely feeling the California retreat a little bit. There's a lot of people moving in here and uh, seeking Cheaper pastures probably is the best way to say it. So anyway, it's, it's been fabulous. And this is the time of year. Uh, we're currently, again, in middle of April. I don't know when this will air, um, that I definitely miss California and the Bay Area weather because it snowed like four inches here over the middle of April. <laughs> I turned on my sprinklers early in the week. So it was like in the you know high 60s and I got to turn it all and shut it all down and we get a, a big dump of snow. So I'm, uh, I'm definitely jealous of all the you know, blossoms and everything uh, out in, in the Bay Area and the great weather. Perfect weather right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, well, thanks so much for joining today. Tell us a little bit about Brondell. You've been there for, oh my gosh, uh, nearing a decade or maybe even a little bit more than that. You've probably seen, uh, you've had a front row seat to a lot of innovation and um, excitement at the company. Tell us a little bit about the organization and your role there. Yeah, so yeah, I've been with Brondell for um, just now 11 years, uh, moved out from Seattle uh, for the position actually, um, and was with the company when there's just five employees, um, and now we're much larger, magnitudes larger than that, um, and we also, at the time where I started, we only had a handful of products, um, you know, all centered around the toilet and bidets, um, and since then we've grown, um, you know, into uh, feels better already company um, and added uh, water filtration and air purification, also uh, shower kind of bathing um, filtration as well. Um, so drink, breathe, bathe, and flush. Uh, all your, uh, you know, <laughs> all your core elements, uh, we're, we're, you're well taken care of with Brondell. Feels better already. Oh, I love it. And I love that tagline. Well, you and I were chatting a little bit earlier and we talked about the founding story and the founders. And I think that's pretty fascinating, especially for someone in your space. Um, maybe not as surprising now with the advent of, oh my gosh, like Nest thermostats and all these other areas of like tech people starting these consumer product companies and, and seeing white space there. But I think it's probably somewhat novel. Tell us a little bit about the founding story there and um, how it's influenced everything from products, you know, development to expansion and, and all those other areas. Yeah, well, our founder's name is uh, Dave Samuel, and he started the company um, in 2003, actually, um, after kind of web, web 1.0 days, uh, bubble burst, 
Yeah. And he was in the internet and he was thinking what's not in the internet, but still technologically advanced. And he remembered back um, to a, a, a business trip he took with his dad to Japan, actually. Um, he was just out of high school on his way to MIT and um, you know, was at a super traditional Japanese business dinner with his father, uh, left the table, excused himself to go to the bathroom, and then he encountered his first you know, electronic bidet toilet seat with remote control. And being the professed gadget geek that he is, he's like, I got to hit the buttons. And so he ended up totally uh, spraying himself down with toilet water and had to go back to his dad's super traditional <laughs> Japanese business dinner. So Classic. always left the mark right on him. Um, so fast forward again, back to the dot-com bubble bursting. And he thought, oh, wow, the, you know, these products still aren't in North America but they're pretty ubiquitous in J Japan. At the time, I think they had an 80% you know, penetration rate. Now it's like 92%. Yeah. And so we thought, wow, I wanna introduce that here. Um, so we got uh, his friend, Scott Pinizzotto, um, who was a product engineer, uh, worked for Indian Motorcycle, had worked for Sony in Japan. Um, so they, they founded the company um, because there wasn't a whole lot of people doing uh, streaming stuff online during web 1.0 days. Um, Dave was doing music. Um, he was friends with Mark Cuban, who was doing sports. Um, and so he told Mark about the opportunity. It's not just every home in America, but it's every toilet in every home in America. And Mark signed on um, and invested in the company as well. Um, and then the guy who runs the, the business, uh, Steve Shear, was the fourth employee at Craigslist. Worked with Craig in his apartment when it was just San Francisco, and he was the operations guy that helped scale uh, Craigslist. So uh, definitely pretty unique uh, group of people who have a track record of identifying the future and pulling it into today. Yeah, I love that. And I actually had no idea, like I heard like a, a brief snippet. So that's even more cool to just dig a little deeper and hear so much more of the background. How do you feel like that has impacted innovation at the company? Um, having these kind of like a serial entrepreneurs as well as like tech visionaries involved. Um, how do you feel like it's changed the everything from the design of the products and, and how you approach the market um, to the actual, you know, implementation of, of, of technology and innovation in, into the go to market strategy. Yeah, I mean, we've always looked at, we've entered into a lot of markets where uh, things look very functional, right? And we've always tried to infuse, you know, style. And I think that's kind of, that's come from that, you know, entrepreneurial innovation um, mindset is to form and function come together to create success. Um, and where we've been playing kind of where your, you know, plumbing and hardware uh, companies are. I think a lot of times, you know, looking at, you know, e-commerce and the internet, um, a lot of the kind of old school guys sell a bunch of stuff to a distributor. And then all of a sudden they're wondering why they're having problems online yeah. um, where we came with that, you know, internet native mindset. We had a better understanding and approach things, uh, you know, what the knock on effects would be online. And so we built our strategies and our distribution strategies and, and things around knowing how it was gonna affect kind of that online world. And 11 years ago, uh, you know, not a lot of people thought that uh, about internet first and, and we definitely approached it that way. Yeah, and no, I think that's so fascinating. And if you think about kind of the, uh, I can't remember what they call it, like diffusion of innovation curves, right? The, the customer adoption tipping point sort of mentality, right? Like 
bidets uh, specifically, I know you're in a bunch of other categories, but that one is interesting to your point, like already run through the cycle in Japan and maybe some other countries in Europe for sure. Uh, in the US, a lot of early adopters for a very long time. Yeah. And then talk about what happened with COVID. Like uh, I am a bidet adopter, right? Like I've, I've known them, I've liked them actually for a really long time. I never put them in because I always wanted a heated bidet and I was a little intimidated to go run all the wiring into my bathroom, et cetera. I finally did it during COVID. Uh, I bought my first bidet and I like will never go back. In fact, I'm, I'm looking for excuses to go put my bidet in other, uh, in other areas. So um, tell us a little bit about what happened there. Obviously a, a jump in competitors. I see it on you know, the Instagram feeds or on TikTok or whatever. So there's a, a ton of noise um, and awareness getting built. That's, tell us what's happening, what that's doing to the category. Yeah, so we, as you kind of said, I mean, I would say a long tail, um, steady adoption, but not necessarily, you know, bell curve yeah. adoption rates. Um, so we experienced that for a long time it was healthy growth, profitable growth. Um, and then, uh, it, and I would say that that growth, a lot of times comes by, you know, people hearing, um, experiencing and then they feel like they're in on the secret and then they can't help but tell their friends about it, right? So that's a good, nice, steady business, right? Um, and then it's just about making sure you're getting in front of the people that once they go to look for these things that you have the distribution and you have that wide uh, net cast that you're capturing that. Totally. Um, and then with COVID, uh, obviously, when people went to go get their draconian toilet paper on the shelf in their uh, Safeway or Whole Foods or something <laughs> and it wasn't there, and people freaked out. The first thing they did is they turned to the internet um, and they looked for uh, an alternate uh, alternative uh, method of, of cleaning themselves. So, and that's where we were there to take care of people. Um, so we did see pretty explosive growth rate and just the awareness of bidets. And um, and again, just like yourself, John, uh, you experienced it and you just said yourself, you'd never go back. Um, and it really is a situation where you know if you had never taken a shower before you jumped in the shower and you turn that water on for the first time, instead of taking a dry towel and trying to uh, wipe yourself clean, right? You just yeah. be like, oh, aha moment, right? Yeah. Um, and so we do see that that is what's happening. The more awareness, the more people experience, it's just, a, 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 you know, the adoption rates are there. Yeah. So, and when we think about, you know, e-commerce innovation and e-commerce growth as a whole, right? Like that's what we specialize in here at Pattern is, is blowing brands up, accelerating brands, we kind of have the simple equation, right? Of like traffic times conversion times price or basket size uh, equals revenue. And then you just repeat for customer lifetime value, et cetera. So walk us through a little bit. I mean, of, of course you get this kind of boom in uh, traffic because of all this awareness and no toilet paper. And it's like this weird, you know, everyone's indoors anyway, right? So it's like this weird convergence that you couldn't have predicted. Um, Tell us about innovation in e-commerce, right? Because you're kind of given this gift and you're probably at a little bit of the crossroads of like either my lunch is going to get stolen or my share is going to get stolen because there are a ton of new lower cost entrants in, or I can kind of double down to increase and take advantage of the traffic and maybe increase conversion of that traffic uh, and get my unfair share of, of kind of this explosive growth. Tell us about what innovations um, you guys have kind of brought to bear to um, to accelerate what you guys are doing from an e-commerce perspective over the last, whatever, 18, 24 months. Yeah, so, I mean, 
pre-pandemic, I mean, people were starting to understand what the product was, but it was really um, about ed education, right? And having to, to, to get out there and tell people about what the product was um, and, and, and then you could convert, but first you had to make, make people aware and, and understand. Um, I think what, what the pandemic accelerated um, was the shift to lifestyle. Right, so now people a lot of times are well. What's the difference between your bidet and this bidet? Instead of what is that? Is you know, um, and so I think you know what what innovations we've implemented is how are you know how can we be authentic? Uh, you know, as a brand in in all of our you know e-commerce touch points. You know, whether that's through you know top of funnel and um, you know retargeting, or whether that's you know at the decision point. Um, and, and making sure that we're talking about the benefits, uh, you know, and our brand authenticity of, of who we are, that we're not just a, a new entrant um, into the space, that we're not, you know, a fly-by-night company, that we're not, uh, you know, an import company, but we're actually a, a North American native brand um, who's built a, a long track record, or we're going to be here um, if, if people need us. Um, that's one of our core um, you know, values of the company is, is care. So we care for our, our customers, we care for our employees, we care for our partners, and we care for our products. And so people, if they know that, you know, authentic, you know, brand voice is going to be there to care for them through the purchase cycle um, and in support afterwards, that really does, you know, set us apart. And at the end of the day, that's what helps with, you know, that conversion rate. Yeah, I love that. I think it's, you know, such an underrated, but yet obvious kind of innovation, right, is, is innovating around that customer experience. And, and I think, you know, the more removed you get away from that and focus on these distractions, the more it kind of comes back to bite you. Because at the end of the day, it's like best product often wins um, and best, best experience kind of wins as well. And I think that's been, it's great, right? You look at your reviews on Amazon or whatever, and you guys are sitting at hundreds of ratings at four and a half or five star ratings. I think it's, it's really, really solid. So congratulations on that front. Um, anything that kind of comes top of mind for, you know, things that you're currently doing to accelerate your, your online success? Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times, um, you know, people, you're in the tension between tactics and strategy. Um, and so a lot of times you can get stuck into those, those tactics and that can turn into a churn, right? Because then that's also, you know, you're playing, you potentially start playing on price because you're just working a tactic, but it's kind of the hollow shell of what the strategy sure. is. And I think that does tie back into some of that brand authenticity, but it's also, you know, a lot of times, you know, we've had discussions about, you know, the chicken and egg. It's do you uh, identify your target customer then go after them, find where they are, or do you, you know, do a bunch of small tests, fail fast, understand where you're getting your conversions, and then seek to to scale where you're seeing traction, right? And let that inform where you're going. Uh, I can't tell you that we have it all figured out, so I think that there's still tension between that chicken and egg. Um, but I think that speaks more to strategy and getting away from getting stuck into the churn of of tactics, right? And 
just about everybody has access to the same tactics. I mean, uh, there's budgets, so I understand that that's not any, it's a completely equal playing field. But yeah. really what differentiates is again, I, I believe is, is, is strategy, not necessarily tactics. You need, to, you need to win on tactics. You need to have your playbook down. But at the, at, at the very beginning, even before you start those tactics, you gotta, you gotta set the strategy, the direction, um, the definition. Um, again, you can't be brought brand authentic if you first haven't figured out who you are as a brand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I think is so fascinating is like once you've arrived, quote unquote, on the go to market strategy, or at least on the product strategy, and you're building great stuff, and you're, get, and you're getting it out there. Um, then comes this like, okay, where do I, and I don't know how your supply chain has been impacted by this whole, you know, pandemic, but you know, you're going to have to start making, especially in your role over sales, you're going to have to start deciding where do I ship products? Who do I kind of stock up? Um, and at the end of the day, if you overstock, I was reading a really interesting article the other day on how much of our, um, GDP growth is done by actually overstocking of inventory either for fear that the, the pandemic effects will be have a longer tail than they did um, or that consumer demand that was just on fire for the last, I don't know, three quarters um, would actually go in perpetuity. And so you, now you're actually seeing, okay, they're trying to analyze how much is actual growth versus how much is almost like artificial growth by overbuying inventory. And you're going to get this like weird bullwhip effect. And and smattering. So I, I think, you know, there are many industries that are going to be impacted by this. Um, but I guess that just goes back to that over, overall question on that go to market of how have you guys dealt from an e-commerce perspective? I see many brands kind of do a broad distribution strategy um, and, and treat e-commerce almost like brick and mortar. And they end up flooding the market. There's a ton of unauthorized sellers. And, you know, then price erosion starts to happen. We call that like the profitability death spiral. And I've seen other brands take a very controlled approach to e-commerce um, to try to avoid that and really try to have a very clean channel, whether they're selling, you know, 1P on a marketplace to Amazon or they're selling themselves as a third party or they're using something like a pattern. But regardless, it's more of like that pretty controlled distribution strategy. Where would you say Brondell fits on that spectrum and, and what has been the repercussion of some of those investments or decisions you've made? Um, in your distribution strategy for e-commerce over the last you know couple of years, yeah. So I mean, over over the my tenure at at, at Brondell, so eleven years, I think we've been at different places on that spectrum. Yeah. Um, within the last few years, um, I feel like we've been much more balanced in that. I think we still have a pretty wide footprint. Um, so if you're you know googling. Um, Brondell, you know, one of our partner ads is going to come up, um, or even our, ourselves. Um, but we do have, a, you know, multi-channel distribution strategy. Um, we do have great partners, um, so that we, you know, we. I, I hesitate to say controls in place because we do know that the the internet is still the internet, and so if you think you have control, you are kidding yourself. <laughs> um, but we, you know, it comes with good partners. I think that goes back to kind of that core value of caring, um, because our partners do understand that we care that we're not just trying to flip um, quick product, but we're in for the long haul and in relationship. Um, so, I, I, you know, for certain channels, you know, we have exclusive partnerships. Um, in other channels, um, we might have, you know, uh, we might approach it with differentiation. 
Um, but we try to be very thoughtful, knowing that one product to rule them all uh, for all partners and all channels um, typically is a very messy uh, place to be. And uh, you'll spend a lot of time and a lot of effort uh, not getting very far uh, very fast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I totally concur. I think the the arc of what e-commerce distribution strategy has looked like has been absolutely upended over the past several years and continues to be. Like even in my spot of being in, you know, in this company for four years, uh, so fascinating, A, to just see general trends, but also to talk with brands or re-talk to them you know, that I spoke to a year and a half or two years or three or four years ago at this point um, that are now coming back and saying, hey, we're, we decided to switch gears or remember that strategy we talked about, we finally did it. Um, let's kind of re-engage. So it's, it's been super fascinating. Um, well, just moving on again on the topic of innovation, tell us a little bit more about like, how do you guys build out of the box innovative ideas? Like what does the culture look like? How do you guys think about innovation? Um, and what does that look like at, at Brondell? Yeah, so to come up with out-of-box ideas, um, I mean, two, two things are paramount for us, and that's customer and collaboration, right? So first, it's the customer, because it has to start with the customer. You don't come up with a solution and then go looking for the problem, right? So we, we want to deliver uh, addressable needs to the market. Um, so we're constantly listening to customer feedback. Um, we have a great customer feedback loop. We're um, constantly iterating on our products as well. So we don't just launch a product and then it's locked and done and never changed, right? So we, we iterate. So if we hear like something very simple, like uh, we used to have a one minute uh, program wash cycle on our electronic bidet toilet seats. And yeah. we constantly were hearing it's not long enough, it's not long enough. So we, we increased the programming you know, in a different product, in subsequent productions to two minutes, right? Um, people can hit the stop button whenever. So things like that. So it's always got to be the customer first. And that's where we put that care for the customer, right? Um, because that's got to inform everything um, we do. And then second um, is collaboration. Um, so that's not, you know, our president, you know, Steve Shear isn't sit, sitting in a, in a glass tower coming up with wonderful ideas and decrees and putting them down to all the Brondellians to run and, and, and implement, right? Um, but it truly is, a, a, we have a collaborative culture and the best ideas uh, come up during that. And we definitely subscribe to an idea meritocracy. Um, and so we say it's everybody's duty to come to the table with a deep conviction. So we don't want people to come to meetings, you know, just flippantly thinking, you know, like I haven't thought about it. I'm just now sitting at the table. Here's kind of what I think right now. We want people to think, be prepared, come with a deep conviction. But coupled with that deep conviction, they need to be holding that loosely, right? So then that way we're all fighting for the best ideas. You're not fighting on your hill for your idea, you know, fighting and dying on, on that hill but we're all sitting there fighting for the best idea. So that way, if you have that deep conviction and someone's able to shoot a hole in that idea and someone else has a better idea, you let go of your deep conviction. Um, and so that, that, that collaborative culture where we are all invested and we all can trust each other knowing that we're all coming with that same mindset and we're all fighting for the best idea creates a collaborative, innovative culture where the best ideas win. And that's really where you're going to come up with the game-changing ideas. 
Yeah, I love that. Well, maybe I'll add another C on that that I'm hearing is uh, just that curiosity. And I, I wish, I mean, there's so much even about our own country, right? Like, uh, not to go into politics or whatever, but it's like, you know, it's like that there are so many deeply held convictions across whatever aisles you're looking at. Um, and I love that. I, I think it's like such a, a testament to a strong culture and the right thing. But it's also if, if everyone holds on too long uh, or at the expense of the best idea or at the expense of being curious and, and building something truly innovative, um, that's going to hurt. Like it's, it's, a, it's a detriment. So I, I think that's it's awesome. And to the degree that you can stay curious, I often you know, tell folks when they're interviewing a pattern or whatever, it's like, tell me about that culture. And I just said, you know, kind of does start in a way from the, the top down. And our co-founder and CEO, Dave, he's one of the most decisive person I've ever met. Like his ability to truly just make a decision quickly and not get paralyzed, especially for being a data person, right? Like sometimes data yeah. people are amazing, but sometimes they're just like, they get paralyzed because there's too much and they want to spend too much time evaluating or analyzing or reevaluating. And, and he is very quick to make a decision. But the good news is, is he's actually incredibly um, humble too. And he's willing to be swayed by data or by a, a cogent argument. Um, and so I just, I love that, like super passionate, willing to make a quick decision, but also willing to be wrong and make a mistake or, or kind of switch tracks or, or gears um, if there's a better idea that kind of comes to the table. So anyway, that's one of the, I guess, unsolicited um, leadership principles that I've really uh, absorbed and, and learned about and been mentored here at Pattern. For you and your uh, world, Tell us about, you know, one leadership principle that's really led to your success. Might be one that already is a, an innate principle that's uh, for you, but, or you've been surrounded by incredible leaders um, by virtue of your, your place in the organization. Tell us about a principle that's really, uh, for you, has led to your success. Yeah, something, you know, I, I, I began to learn early in my career and, and really was able to to articulate here within the last probably five years and, and definitely have implemented within um, our, our sales organization, our sales and marketing organization is this idea of shoulder, uh, shoulder to shoulder principle. Um, and what I mean by that is oftentimes people, if there's a problem, you know, people come together uh, and they're actually faced off. They come together face to face and the problems in between them but what, what ends up happening is, is you're looking at each other and you each other become the problem, right? And, and oftentimes that happens in sales as well. It's like all of a sudden I'm trying to sell you something, we're face to face and it's almost like an adversarial weird kind of relational yeah. kind of a thing. And that goes across the board, right? Um, you, you can find that. So what we've sought to do in, in, in my leadership, you know, what I've sought to do is really change that positioning to shoulder to shoulder. So we're in it together. We're next to each other. We're sidled up, you know, teamed up, and we're looking at the problem that might be in front of us both. Yeah. And so the problem's not each other ever because we're not facing each other. We're not facing off. We're not adversarial. We're actually in more of that team posture. And we're looking at a problem and we're together coming up with that solution. So automatically, it's more collaborative. Automatically, it's more of a team um, atmosphere. Um, and, and just the idea that we're in it together. And again, it's, you know, it kind of breaks also the top down kind of idea where people are, you know, like I'm lording it over you, or I have to give you direction. It's like, nope, 
we're in this we're in this together. So we 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 talk about an organization quite a bit. You know that shoulder to shoulder posture. I love it. Well, I I can definitely see how that culture uh, that you spoke about earlier around collaboration uh, is underscored by that specific leadership principle. And uh, again, it's so funny. Like I'm not a political person at all, but I just I I there's still that overtone there of like I wish as a country again that we could kind of stand shoulder to shoulder and, and it's a good parenting advice too right like yeah i gotta go stand shoulder to shoulder with my wife uh raising our kids here and making sure that we don't become the uh nothing nothing teenagers love more than making their parents adversaries right so That's standing true. shoulder to shoulder it's a great great life hack great great life principle well thank you so much parker for joining us today um it was an absolute pleasure to get to know you better and um congratulations on all the success you've had at brondell and the innovation you're pushing forward and I really hope that we get to meet up in person. Great. No, I really appreciate the time. Thanks uh, for having me on. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining the show today. If you like it uh, or you have any recommendations, feel free to reach out to me. I'm john at pattern.com. Otherwise, subscribe to the podcast and uh, send us a review and let us know what's working or what you'd like to hear better. Thanks so much, John. See you.